pray together. Father, thank you for this privilege, this privilege to gather together in a place that you've provided for us in safety and freedom. Thank you that we have your written word and thank you that your spirit confirms in our spirits that we are your children and we can cry out that you are our Abba Father. We pray for those that have needs in this hour. We think of Elise Falvo's dad as he's uh, on his way to the hospital. We pray your grace and mercy upon the Falvos. So many others with so many needs. We pray that we would commit ourselves and our cares to you, knowing that you care for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There are certain events in life that make us aware of our neediness. When we lose a loved one, when physical illnesses invade our lives and our families, when financial hardships come, these types of events make us feel vulnerable and we start to recognize that we are not invincible. The events surrounding our son Ace's birth and his first couple of years of life brought constant reminders that we're not even in control of sustaining the lives of our children. I'll remember we were, there was a number of men at a lawyer's office that day, I was one of them, and we were signing papers for a piece of property here at the church. And during that meeting, I received a phone call. It was my wife, and I was thinking, all right, well, I usually ignore the first one in a meeting, but if a second one comes through, I had better pay attention because she doesn't interrupt meetings for no reason. Uh, and a second one came to which I excused myself to get some information and found out she was having some problems, so she headed to the hospital. This was on April 30th of 2013. Um, Asa was due in the month of June. So we're a little premature for when he was supposed to be coming on the scene. Um, based upon that phone call, I dismissed myself from the meeting, met her at the hospital. One thing led to another. We were at one hospital. We had to go to another hospital because they couldn't care for her where she was. Went to another hospital. There we were. And people were panicking because things weren't so great. And then we went through the process, an emergency C-section. Um, that was fine. Everything went through and then they said well we're going to keep uh, your son in the NICU overnight because uh, of the possibility of some recurrences but everything should be fine uh, everything's good all right great next morning everything wasn't so fine and so we had to go through a process and they, they were trying to keep uh, his heart rate under control with medication and uh, very competent people very confident everything's okay but you know they had some some markers that they had to meet in order to, to make sure that things were uh, progressing in the right direction and they weren't making any of those markers and they had finally come at the end of that day to say this is not something we can handle here and so we're going to have to transfer you to Boston Children's Hospital alright my wife just had a c-section my son is going that way what, what? so that's interesting. Well, she has a great doctor, thankfully, and he got her transferred to uh, a hospital nearby. And so we're, 
we're heading north, and I'm following an ambulance from Providence to Boston, driving down the streets. All right, Lord, what do you have for us? Uh, because if they can't get the heart rhythm under control, they say, well, if 24 hours is fine. After that, it starts to do permanent damage, etc., etc. We get into the room, walk down into the uh, cardiac care intensive unit, and two minutes after being there, they had <laughs> already stopped the problem. Um, by using what's called a pacing wire. Nonetheless, everything's fine until the next episode. Everything's fine until the next episode. So we were there for a number of days. Um, it was quite a while. Um, and throughout that next couple of years, this was the process. Every now and then, things went haywire in his heart, with his heart, and we'd have to get him to a hospital, and hopefully the medication would take care of it. If not, back to Boston. So... Um, one of those interesting times, we went to the emergency room with him. We had known the drill. We were, we were not really that stressed about it because we had kind of been through it a number of times. They get him on the table, and they try treatment number one. We always tell them treatment number one has never worked. I don't expect it to work this time. Treatment number one didn't work. Treatment number two usually worked. This time, treatment number two sent him into a what they called an aberrant heart rhythm, and the leader of the case at that time started to panic. When moms panic, okay, when nurses panic, all right, when a doctor panics, eh, when the lead doctor panics, that's when you start to say, something isn't right now. I'm not comfortable any longer. So immediately the prayers, Lord, I don't know what you're playing on here. I know other people have lost children, so I don't necessarily know that you're going to keep our child alive. Give us grace to deal with this. You know, all these kinds of things come into your mind, completely out of your hands. You know, if I could do something to make it work, I'd be there. You know, whatever you've got to do, if you can make it stop, you do it. If you can fix it, you try. But things get out of your hands. You find out very quickly that you're a needy person. You find out very quickly that you're vulnerable. And Paul, in this text, speaks of his own vulnerability. He is, he's a strong man. He's the one issuing orders to his followers to, to be strong in the Lord. He's the one saying, hey, listen, don't be ashamed. Stand up. Keep going. He's the one that's always barking out orders, but he lets us know in this text that even the mighty Apostle Paul finds himself as a needy person. There's an old commercial. How do you spell relief? R-O-L-A-I-D-S. I don't think that taking a Rolades or a Tums is going to take care of our neediness. There's something far deeper far more challenging and far more satisfying than any remedy that our pharmaceutical companies can provide for us. At the end of our study this morning, we're going to see three solutions for our neediness that are authored by God and described by Paul. In the process, before we get to those solutions for our, our, our need for relief, our neediness, we want to see Four challenges that reveal our neediness. Now, the way that the scripture reading was in the bulletin was to try to frame it so you can see the bigger picture of this passage. Look at verse 9. 
verse 9 of 2 Timothy chapter 4. Do your best to come to me soon. Look down at verse 21. Do your best to come before winter. What is he saying? At the beginning and end of this passage, he's letting them know, I need you. I need you. I am in a a vulnerable situation. I'm a needy person. First of all, what we want to notice as we go through this section is our neediness is revealed when friends depart from God. Our neediness is revealed when friends depart from God. Look what he says in verse 10. He starts with four. Do your best to come to me soon because Demas... For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. The term deserted means to abandon. It's very straightforward. It's the same word that God uses in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 5 as a a great comfort when God says to you, as a believer in Jesus Christ, I will never leave you nor forsake you. In the Greek, five times there are negatives. So if we were in English trying to interpret this, we're like, all right, well, if it's, if it's a negative, then it's negative. If it's a double negative, okay, now it's a positive. If it's a, a triple negative, now it's a negative. If it's a quadruple negative, now it's a positive. All right, good, he's got five negatives in there, so it's a, it's, it's a negative. That's not how it works in Greek. When you say something five times in the negative, it is for emphasis. I will, under no circumstances, in no way, at no time, for no reason, ever depart from you. I'll never forsake you. This is good news. Paul used the same word when speaking about his own persecution in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 9. He says, I've been persecuted. What's the next sentence say? But not forsaken. Persecuted, but not forsaken. God will never forsake his people. There's a reason for that, folks. It's a a great reason, it's a humbling reason, it's a saddening reason, but it's a joyful reason at the same time. I know, mixture of emotions, this is what our lives consist of. The reason that God will never forsake us is that Jesus was forsaken on the cross so that we would never be forsaken. You'll remember the words of Jesus as he hung on Calvary's cross and he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was forsaken on the cross so that we would never be forsaken. There's a great song. Um, You may not care for it um, from a stylistic standpoint. I I happen to like it. It's called Never Once. And the chorus of it goes, Never once did did we ever walk alone. Never once did you leave us on our own. You are faithful, God. You are faithful, This is the promise. This is the hope that we have. Here's here's Paul in a dungeon, in a prison, underground, cold. He's got Luke with him. And he, he says, Timothy, do your best to come to me soon. Come to me. Because Demas has forsaken me because he was in love with the present world. Demas left me. He he was a friend of mine. Why did Demas leave? Paul, why did Demas forsake Paul? Demas, before he ever forsook Paul, forsook God. Turn with me in your Bibles, please, to 1 John chapter 2. Demas represents an illustration of Jesus' parable of the sower. You remember the, three, the, the four types of ground 
Well, the third type was sown among thorns. And Jesus interpreted for us what that meant to be one who received the word of God and have it sown on thorns. It says, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word. And it, the word, the seed, proves unfruitful. Jesus illustrates those who receive the word and they hear it. They take it in. There's there's an intrigue, maybe even a belief, an agreement to what is being said. But in the process of life, all these anxieties have arisen and this desire for other things In fact, a desire for something that they find to be better than what God has to offer. The deceitfulness of riches. They choke out the word so that the word becomes unfruitful. How can the word become unfruitful? Well, if it's not mingled together with faith, it is unfruitful. The Bible is dynamic and it's powerful. It's sharp. It, it, it gives us information about God. It gives us information about ourselves. It changes us. It, it transforms us. It emboldens our hearts. It quickens our soul. It lightens our path. It builds us up unless it is rejected. Rejected. And this is exactly what happened in the life of this third illustration in Jesus' parable, and it's exactly what happened in the life of Demas. Now, Demas, he was no son Johnny come lately. Demas had been around. Demas had been serving alongside of Paul. You hear mention of him in the book of Colossians. And yet, just a little while later, after serving on the missions team, departed. What does it reveal? Well, John speaks about this in 1 John chapter 2. Look at verses 15 through 17. John challenges us, do not love the world or the things in the world. That doesn't mean don't love what God's made. It doesn't mean don't look at the beauty of God's creation and not care about it. That's not what it's talking about. Don't love this world's system. Don't love the way that everyone else operates. Don't love the riches that are, that are attainable in the world. That doesn't mean you don't Don't utilize the riches that are in the world, that you don't care about maintaining your family. It's talking about loving the things of the world. Look at what he says as he goes on. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. All right, let's just take a second here. He's not fooling around right now. Do you remember last week when we were talking about the reward that comes Remember, oh, I'm, I'm going away, I'm pouring my life out, he says in verse 8, and there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give to me on that day, and not to me only, but to everyone who loves his appearing. Why do they love his appearing? You love the appearing of someone because you love the person. And here, 
John says, under the inspiration of the Spirit, if you love the world, you don't love the Father. If you don't love the Father, you don't love the Son. If you don't love the Son, you don't love the appearing. And guess what's not laid up for you in heaven? The crown of righteousness. The crown of righteousness is not for a select few folks. The crown of righteousness is for every believer. So to not love the Father is a condemnation toward the lake of fire. This is not good news that Paul that John is offering here. Do not love the world or the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Again, that doesn't mean we don't like a pair of pants. It doesn't mean we don't like a car. It doesn't mean we don't aspire to have a house one day. This is not loving the world. These are things that sustain life. Like you, if you go to, to work without pants, guess what? You have no job. I'm going to recommend wearing pants. Or skirts or whatever it is that is your particular variety of clothing. Wearing clothes to work is good. Driving a vehicle to work is helpful. You'll get there more efficiently. Having a house to stay in keeps the cold out, hopefully, and the, um, the animals out. This is all good. This, these are not, that's not love of the world. Love of the world is when those things supersede your love of the Father. That's the problem. I can't answer it for you. I can answer it for me. You have to answer it for you. Demas forsook Paul because he first forsook the Father because of the cares of this life. He loved this present age rather than the age to come. Look what it says in verses 16 and following. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, or it's passing away along with its desires. So all those things that you have your eye on, they will go, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So he's talking about salvation here. This is, this is serious stuff. As friends, listen carefully, please. As friends, we cannot abandon those who abandon God. As friends, we cannot forsake those who forsake God. That is not the order of business. When a friend forsakes the Lord, what are we to do? Not pretend as though nothing happened, but to pursue them with the gospel. We pursue them with the gospel. Oftentimes, they will not bear with the word of exhortation. You know, the, the, the letter writer of Hebrews, he, he wrote 13 chapters. And he says, I've written to you briefly. I like that guy. I'd like to give him a big hug. Bear with the word of exhortation. What is he? He warned them. Listen, don't flee from God. Jesus is better than anything you'll pursue. Bear with the word of exhortation. So when our friends forsake us because they've forsaken the Lord, we pursue them with the gospel, and they may not bear with that word of exhortation, but guess what they're going to do? They're going to hear it. We're going to give it to them. That is our responsibility, lovingly, caringly, um, not beating them up with it, loving them with it. Head back, please, to 2 Timothy chapter 4. Our hearts break. Our hearts break 
when people abandon their only hope of eternal salvation. This concept of Demas' departure revealed the sense of need within Paul's heart. So he asks Timothy, come soon. A second area of neediness, he says, well, we're going to summarize, as our neediness is revealed when our co-laborers are relocated. Our neediness is revealed when our co-laborers are relocated. Look at verse 10 again. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. And then there's a, a stop. Okay, There's a period. That means end of that sentence. Now he moves on a little bit further. Same basic subject. Different intention. Cretans has gone into Galatia. Not because he was in love with this present age, but because he was called there to minister the gospel. Titus to Dalmatia. Look down at verse 12. Tychicus, or Tychicus, depending on how you like to pronounce it. I, I say Tychicus. If you like Tychicus, you can just re- say it over in your head a different way every time I say Tychicus. Tychicus, I have sent to Ephesus. Listen, we have plans. We have good intentions. Sometimes God turns our plans on their head. The people of Galatia needed the gospel laborer, and so Paul sent Cretans or Crescents. The people of Dalmatia needed a gospel laborer, so God, through Paul, probably sent Titus. The people of Ephesus needed a gospel laborer, so God sent Tychicus. Tychicus would have likely have been a replacement for Timothy in Ephesus, because Paul, Paul wanted Timothy to come, right? And he didn't want to leave the people of Ephesus without an apostolic representative, so he sends Tychicus to, to minister to them. Now, Tychicus is a, an, interesting, he's an interesting guy. He was with Paul through much of his ministry. In Colossians, Paul calls Tychicus three things. He gives him three beautiful descriptions. First, he calls him a beloved brother, a loved brother. Secondly, a faithful brother minister. And third, he calls him a fellow servant. So here's this Tychicus, and he's got these three descriptive titles, really nice. Who wouldn't want to be called a beloved brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant? Tychicus was with Paul through thick and thin. Uh, We first hear of him on Paul's third missionary journey in Acts 20. Tychicus was entrusted at another time with the delivery of the letters of Colossians and Ephesians. It's likely that he also carried the letter of Philemon. In Titus chapter 3 and verse 12, Tychicus was one of two options to minister to the church at Crete. And then in 2 Timothy 4.12, Paul had sent Tychicus that we just read uh, to minister to the church of Ephesus. It's so freeing for someone like Paul to have ministers who can fill in any capacity any capacity. Send a letter, come with me on a journey, go fill in as an apostolic representative, when you can simply trust people to get any task done. You could say that Tychicus was like the the multi-tool or the Swiss army knife of mission work. He could just do anything. I can think of a few people in my life that are like this. No matter what the need is, you can count on them to get it done. But I can think of no one who fits the bill 
more than Pastor Bill. If you need a wall painted or chairs moved, food picked up, if you need a sermon preached, someone needs a visit in the hospital, you need someone to teach a Bible study, to, to preside over a funeral service, the list goes on and on. Whatever you need, here I am. I'll paint a wall, I'll do anything. You need these people like this. They're, they're invaluable. And this is Tychicus. This is Tychicus. Here's Paul all by himself with Luke. Just Luke with me. <laughs> Stupid. I'm sick of Luke. Every time, every time I sneeze, he comes over and checks my heart, makes sure I'm okay. Beloved physician. <laughs> Demas leaves. Crescens leaves. Titus leaves. Tychicus, my, my multi-tool leaves. This leaves a vacuum in someone's life. When our co-laborers leave, there's a sense of sadness both from their departure and the need that is produced by them no longer fulfilling their role. Think about a jack-of-all-trades going out the door. Guess what? You now have to be the jack-of-all-trades. This, this sense of need is getting more and more in Paul's life. And I think that's, that, is the, that is the main theme of these last verses in the book of 2 Timothy. I am in need. Come. Come to me quickly. Come before winter. I have needs. There's a third way that Paul demonstrates neediness. And this third one is our neediness is revealed by physical challenges. Our neediness is revealed by physical challenges. Look at verse 13. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas. All right, he's got some problems here. He's cold. Why is he cold? Well, he's in a dungeon. Likely 12 feet below the, the rest of the earth. It's cold and dark. It's damp. And as Pastor Bill described to you at the beginning of our study of 2 Timothy, is likely right nearby the sewer lines. And every now and then, they would open those sewer lines and let them drown out their, their prisoners. This is not a happy experience. Here's, here's Paul, the beloved apostle, the one that has brought the gospel to all these communities, the one that has been used of God to write 13 letters to the church. All this that God is doing, and here's Paul in a prison, and he's absolutely needy. He is... He's needy because he's, he's cold. Listen, we all have problems, right? Migraines, back and neck pain, broken bones, joint replacement, cancer, heart problems. Our needs are revealed. We find out very quickly that we are not invincible. Paul had experienced all kinds of physical challenges. You'll remember after his conversion in Acts chapter 9, he was blinded. That is, that's, a, that's a challenge. That is difficult. That is difficult to not, you know, I, I, can't even, I can't even imagine. I remember when I couldn't see without my glasses and, and, and I could see like just muted things and it was, it was terrible when I can't find my glasses. Like I, I am a miserable wretch when I can't see. Can you imagine days on end or a life? A life of that. That is so difficult to imagine. Well, Paul experienced this on a temporary basis. Paul describes some more of his difficulties with physical challenge in 2 Corinthians 11. You'll see it on the screen behind me. 
Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with, listen, just in a list, countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. The reason they didn't do 40 is because they assumed possibly at the 40th lash you'd be dead. They didn't want to kill you. They just wanted to hurt you badly. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. Oh, by the way, through all of this, Luke, the beloved physician, was there. You realize that? Luke just threw everything. Luke's barely mentioned. But all the sufferings that Paul went through, just about all of it, Luke was there. Bearing the same burden many times. When we are not physically well, our neediness is at the forefront of our minds. Remember, when we are weak, we have an opportunity to see the grace of God more fully displayed. This is what Paul came to recognize through the course of his life. I don't think he recognized it at the beginning of his life. That's a a lesson we learn through the process of life. The weaker I am, the more prominent Christ becomes if I'm yielded to him. If I complain and, and cry and whine about it, I guess I'm displayed more frequently. But when I yield to the Spirit, Christ is put on display. Our neediness is often revealed by our weaknesses or our physical challenges. There's a fourth way that we see neediness in this passage. Our neediness is revealed when we face opposition. Look at verses 14 and following. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. That's a statement of fact, not a wish. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. You can see the character of Christ and the testimony of Stephen that Paul watched, making its mark on Paul. Here he is, preaching the gospel, facing strong opposition from a man named Alexander. Alexander, he's been mentioned in the book of Acts, chapter 19 at Ephesus. He's also mentioned in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 20. Is it the same guy? I have no idea. Alexander was a common name and it doesn't give his last name. So this is like saying John or Rob today. Well, John gave me this problem. Rob gave me this problem. Well, how many Johns and Robs are there? In fact, I have Robert Charles Clark is my name. If I go to Citizens Bank right now, well, they're not open, they're not your typical bank, but they're still not open on Sundays. You can go in there, right, and I say, my name is Robert Charles Clark, and they're like, which one? They're going to like practically get my social security number out and my birth certificate to prove that I'm not one of the other 75 of us that are in the Citizens Bank database. So Alexander, who is he? It really doesn't matter. Here's the, pro- here's the thing. Here's Paul preaching the gospel. Alexander the coppersmith is opposing that message. Here Paul goes because of of whatever is going on. He goes and he's, he's, he's defending himself. And there's nobody there for him. It's like 
you're driving down the street and you come to a, a red light and you stop. And a guy comes barreling around the corner and he slams into your car. And you're like, dude, what's the matter with you? And you get out, and you're not, you're not saying dude anymore because you don't want to cause a conflict. You get out, and he punches you in the face, takes your glasses and your cell phone, and takes off. Now, there are 15 people all around, and they all leave. There you are with no phone to call the police with, no glasses to see, no witnesses. Maybe a little frustrated. Without the punching and the glasses and the and the phone stealing. I had this happen to my, my wife and I were driving down the street. We came to a stop line. This, this old guy, Hank, comes barreling around the corner, slams into our car. Uh, he pulls off. There were cars all around, and they all walk away. Don't worry about it. Fortunately, Hank was old, and he didn't beat me up, so I'm glad about that. But the only reason that that didn't um, turn into a problem for my family is because Hank told the truth. What if Hank lied and said, no, I, I, you know, they weren't stopped. They, they, they came over the line or whatever the case may be, and you have this big problem. Well, Hank told the truth, so we're good. But what if, what if he lies, and then you, you're on the, on the hook for thousands of dollars, or your, your record is marred, whatever the case may be? It stinks to not have someone come to your defense. And Paul, he's not driving his, his vehicle down the street. His life is on the line. I'm not talking about an insurance claim. Or a few thousand dollars, you're talking about life and death. No one came to my defense. And he says, God, don't lay that to their charge. That, that's pretty impressive. Opposition, whatever the case, reveals our need. Sometimes we need to stand alone. Sometimes we have no choice but to stand alone. But it's always better with the companions. It's always better when we have someone to shoulder, standard, uh, shoulder to shoulder with, right? Say, all right, we're going to do this together. Um, Paul is needy. We're sensing that need over and over again. What solutions does this text offer? It does. It offers us some, some great solutions. The first of all, first solution, encouragement comes from laboring with others. Encouragement comes from laboring with others. We already read 9. And we read verse 21, come to me soon, come before winter. Okay, So Timothy, Timothy's presence is great. Also in verse 10, uh, verse, verse 11, Luke alone is with me. It doesn't sound quite, quite as nice as I think Paul meant it. Paul meant Luke is faithful, the beloved physician's here, I've got him. I really need more help than just Luke can offer. He's been with me through thick and thin. I'm not criticizing and I'm not sick of him yet. But on your way to come to me, grab Mark. For he is useful to me, profitable to me for ministry. When we feel terrible, there can be a tendency, listen carefully, to isolate ourselves. When you're not well spiritually, when you're not well physically, when things aren't going your way, the natural tendency many times is to isolate yourself. This only compounds the problem. And here, Paul says, I am in this deep distress. I have heartbreak from Demas' departure. I I have this difficulty because some of my ministry companions have been uh, taken uh, to other places. I'm cold. I only have Luke. Come, I, I need your companionship. Well, the Bible gives testimony to this elsewhere. Did you know that? 
Look, please, at Hebrews chapter 3, just for a moment. Just a couple, couple pages to your right. Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 12. He says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Oh, take, be careful that you don't fall away from God. You don't depart. Here's the preventive. Instead of falling away, instead of allowing an unbelieving heart to produce evil in you, exhort one another every day. Well, you, you can't do that. They didn't have text messages back then. They didn't have Facebook Messenger back then. They didn't have Twitter and all the other stuff that's going on. No one's making a phone call back in this time. So guess what they did? Instead of uh, trying to send snail mail, they, they would go and actually see one another and exhort one another. How often? Every day, as long as it is called is call today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So the, the call that Paul gives, the, the solution he gives is to be with others, to serve with others, to, to labor together. The Bible tells in the book of Galatians, chapter 6 and verse 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. What's the law of Christ? To love one another. Loving one another means bearing one another's burdens, coming alongside, sharing together, caring about one another. Head, head over to Philemon for a moment. Philemon is right before the book of Hebrews. If you think about the people involved in, in Paul's life and, and the way that he's desiring people, there are certain people who seem to exhibit an unusual gift. Here in Philemon, we're going to notice a, a man who has an unusual gift of encouragement. In verse 7, in verse 7, Paul writes, for I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. People, people, there are certain people with this unique ability to encourage others. Can you think of anyone else in Scripture that has this unique ability? That's the one. Barnabas, son of encouragement. Can you think of anyone he influenced? Well, Paul just asked for him. Get Mark. Bring him to me. He's profitable to me for the ministry. Why is he profitable? Because Barnabas didn't give up on him. Now, it's because God didn't give up on him, right? But God uses people. Barnabas didn't give up on him. It, it is understood that Barnabas influenced Mark, his cousin, and through that relationship, he was exposed to Peter. Now, Peter obviously was an eyewitness of everything that Jesus had done, or many things that Jesus had done. And Mark was one of the penmen of the Gospels. He penned the Gospel of Mark. Through the influence of Peter, through the influence of Barnabas, because Barnabas didn't give up on him. This is incredible. Now, I wonder why Peter was involved with, with, with Mark. Did Peter know what it was like to fall? He did know what it was like to fall. And he knew what it was like to have a faithful Savior who didn't give up on him when he fell. See, we need people. We need each other. God has given us unique people in our lives to bring encouragement. He also has given some people the unique gift of loyalty. And that's where we come back to our beloved physician, Luke. Only Luke is with me. He's been with me through everything. 
When I'm sick, when I feel great. When I need something, there's Luke. He has devoted his entire life to serving God by serving me. That is amazing. I wonder if you have one of those Lukes in your life. Or I wonder, maybe even better, if you can be that Luke to someone else. You know, I can think of, of some people that fit the bill in these things. I'm not going to mention them because I'll leave somebody out. But there are so many people that I can think of that fit the bill in a number of these areas. And you say, thank you, God, for giving us people to encourage us while we labor for you. This is the first solution that Paul gives us or illustrates for us back in 2 Timothy chapter 4. There's a second solution as well back in 2 Timothy. Take a look there. Encouragement comes from remembering God's purpose for us. Encouragement comes from remembering God's purpose for us. First of all, look at verse 13. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas. Also, the books. And above all, the parchments. Now, we don't know what it means. People have ideas about what the books and the parchments are. We know that books are scrolls. And that parchments are animal-skinned pages to write on. Here's is Paul saying, I, I want to read God's Word and I want to be able to write letters to people while I'm here. I don't know. I heard one hypothesis. I thought it was really interesting. I, I, I don't think I would have ever thought of it. Alistair Begg, while covering this text, talked about the fact that Mark is here and Luke is here, both penmen of the Gospels, and in the year 60 seven or so, 68, that this was penned. We don't have a gospel yet. And both of these guys are coming. Are these parchments some scraps that, that give us the accounting of Jesus' ministries? And then Mark and Luke start the process of putting together a, 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 a biography of the Lord Jesus. I have no idea whether it's true. I just thought it was, was kind of interesting and an appealing way to think through it. Nonetheless, Paul hasn't quit. He hasn't quit. He didn't say, hey, listen, I ran the first 17 lengths of the, of the, the race, the last length, this, this 18th length, I'm just going to let someone else take care of it. This is not what Paul does. He's, God has something for me, even in this place. Here I am with physical problems. Here I am with difficulty. My heart is torn about Demas and my heart feels, feels lonely because my other fellow laborers are gone. I, I, I've been opposed and, and I'm about to die. Hey, bring the books and the parchments. I have some work to do. That's what he says. And look what he says a little bit further now in verses 16 and 17. He says, At my first defense, no one came to stand before me or stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. We'll come back to that. So that through me, the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. You hear what he's saying? This is why I'm here. I'm here that the message may be fully expounded and that every Gentile would hear it. This is his burden. But we've heard that burden from him elsewhere. We hear it in First. 
Corinthians 9.16. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. You hear it in Romans 1.15. I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. You hear it in Colossians 1 where he says, Now uh, I rejoice. I rejoice. No one does this. I rejoice in my sufferings for you. I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. What was that? To make known the word of God fully. I messed it up. To make the word of God fully known. This is what he wants to say. God has burdened me. He's given me this task and I'm going to do it until I have no breath left. In the book of Ephesians, he says the same thing. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power to me. Though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. To do what? To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. I'm not done. I think we learned something about encouragement from Paul's testimony here. When we know God's purpose for us, we can run through a wall or break every bone trying. It makes me wonder, do you know God's purpose for you? Do you know God's purpose for you? If you do, Alexander the coppersmith can come up against you and you'll keep going. And at your first defense, You'll see no compadres standing with you, and you'll keep going. And you might preach, and there not be a response the way you had envisioned, and you keep going. Why? I have been sent, commissioned by God to bring the gospel to everyone that will hear it. And I will not stop just because I don't like the results. Paul demonstrates this. There's a third and final solution, most important solution, and we'll do it briefly. Encouragement comes from knowing we can count on our rescuing God. While no one stood with Paul at his first defense, verse 16, in verse 17, the Lord stood by me. And in that standing by him, the Lord strengthened me. So that at the end of verse 17, he says, So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. Well, what does that bring to your attention? What does that bring to your mind? There's a, there's a biblical image coming here. I don't know if Paul had this in mind because the Bible doesn't tell us, but I can envision at least a couple of illustrations that he might be intimating First of all, you've got Daniel going into the lion's den, right? And there, if you're thrown into the lion's den, how likely is it that you're not going to die? Zero likelihood. Zero. And God doesn't leave that to our imaginations because after Darius comes down and says, Daniel, did your God keep you alive? Yep. <laughs> I'm right here. Can I come out now? Comes out, and the, the ones who accuse Daniel are thrown in there, and before they touch the ground, they are done. Those are some hungry lions. No chance. But God delivered Daniel from the lion's mouth. And maybe he also might have in mind Peter's words from 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 
8. Be sober. Be vigilant. For your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walks about, seeking whom he may devour. But God has delivered me from the lion's mouth. This is, this is such great comfort. And verse 18 gives us the ultimate rescue. The ultimate rescue. He says, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed. Pause right there for a second. In verse 6, here he told us he was a goner. He's not saying that I won't experience evil. He experienced evil to the end, to his death. What he's saying is, but that's all they can do. That's it. They've got nothing else. They can take my life, but they can't take my soul. Look what he says. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. He says, you know what? You can do whatever you want to do. You can hurt my body, but you can't touch my eternity. Jesus has rescued me from every peril. I have life. I have life because of him. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what discouragements you're facing. Everyone has them. Everyone has weaknesses. We are all desperately needy. And if you don't think you are, I'm very sorry for you. I don't mean this rudely. You will find out shortly that you are needy. You will be broken if you think you're not needy. God will bring you to that point of realization. So my broken neediness is taken away by his perfect sacrifice and his perfect fulfilling is placed on my account. So when I stand before him at the judgment day, if I've trusted him, if, I, if I've come to know that Jesus is the only Savior, when I stand before my, my judge, I will be standing before my Savior. I'll be welcomed in, not because I am righteous, but because his righteousness is made me, has made me righteous and therefore acceptable to God. We are all needy, but we have solutions. Praise be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we need you and we want you. We pray that we would not rest upon our own fleshly ways, but that we would rest upon you knowing that you are a rescuing, redeeming, fulfilling God. We pray in Jesus' name.